Hello, podcast listeners. This is just Travis speaking, and I know it's unusual that I'm speaking before the intro music, but I come before you today with a new feature of the podcast that we're including in the next three episodes, and that is a content warning. We've not given content warnings for any of the books we've previously chosen, and I think we're going to continue to treat this on a case-by-case basis, so we're not going to do a list up top or anything. Usually in the literature we've selected, I don't think it would be warranted, but Amanda and I both agreed that given the contents of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which is what this and the next two episodes will be about, that it was, yeah, for the first time warranted. The Bluest Eye is a novel that features graphic depictions and descriptions of sexual violence, sexual assault, and racism and racist violence. And so if those are topics to which you are either sensitive or you just do not want to engage, we do describe the book in full or we do analyze the book in full. I don't even remember at this point, to be honest, if we discuss those quotes or those moments, but we do talk about them. It's their essential moments in the story, so they do come up a lot in discussion. I'm not going to issue timestamps for any of the things in specific just because it permeates kind of the whole novel and our entire discussion is about the happenings in the book. So instead, I'm going to include this content warning audio up front in front of all the episodes, and I'll let you, the listener, decide what you're comfortable with. We wholeheartedly recommend reading this incredible novel, but again, that's completely up to you to determine what you're comfortable with, what you want to engage with, and think about. And so, yeah, I hope this serves as just enough of a heads up, and so you know what you're getting into. If nothing else, please listen to the book recommendation for The Bluest Eye because we we both feel really passionate about people reading it. And I think we make a case there. And again, we don't get into a lot of the descriptions and the quotes and all of that from the book. But I think we make a really good case about why this is important, why it's so remarkably well done, and why you should read it. So we hope you listen in with us. Thanks for listening to this, and we'll see you between the pages. Let's get to that intro music. Welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always takes its 25 cents down to the corner store to purchase the singular candy of our generation, the Reese's Springtime Egg. I think it is genetically proven, scientifically proven, to be the greatest candy ever made, Amanda. Do you agree? I 100% agree. The ratio, (laughs) and it is as we're recording this, the springtime egg is in full bloom in grocery stores all across our great nation, and I've purchased, let's just say too many of them. They're kind of expensive, (laughs) too. They're a dollar per Reese's egg at my store. Oh, wow. Have you indulged this spring in a Reese's egg? Not yet, just um, because I know that if I buy them, I will eat them. So. Yeah, yeah. And you, as it turns out, they'll just let you buy as many as you want in the store. You can just walk out of right. there with 50 eggs and no one's going to stop you from eating 50 eggs. I know. It's like, I mean, it's irresponsible, really, of the store. Yeah, it is. They should put they should put hard caps on that kind of thing, truly. We're in complete agreement there. I can't be contained and I can't control myself, so help me. Somebody help me. <laughs> if you're wondering why we're discussing the best candies to buy with a quarter... It is because today we're beginning our book club episodes on The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, in which the characters are often going to the store for candies and ice creams and treats. If you're unfamiliar with the podcast, welcome. This is, again, the Lightly Literary Podcast, a book club episode featuring me, Travis, and Amanda, my co-host. Hey, Amanda. Hello. Welcome. Today we are here to analyze the first half of The Bluest Eye, which for us goes about 95 pages in. Isn't that right? Yes. 
Yeah, so we're, we're splitting the book in half. This Friday, as you're listening to this, is going to be part one of The Bluest Eye. Next Friday, we'll cover the second half and the entire book in part two. The goal of a book club episode, as we do them here, is to analyze the work, discuss it in full. So we'll be spoiling the first half of the book, as is our usual way in the book clubs. If you don't follow us on social media, please remember to do so. We are the Lightly Literary Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram, just one word. And follow us there, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice, we always appreciate that. And of course, tell your friends and family to listen to the show and read along with us. We're here to discuss The Bluest Eye, which I chose. Amanda, what was the prompt you gave me for this one? Uh, The prompt was to choose an author or a book um, that deserves to be considered a classic. Yes, so I chose by author and firmly have never read this book before and I've mentioned this, I know, in a couple episodes prior. I would almost never pick a book on here that I've already read. I'm a terrible rereader and that I just don't do that <laughs> and that I don't reread. And so I'm going to be sticking to things that are new to me. Toni Morrison, though, I know pretty well from studies in college. That's when I encountered her work for the first time. And she's just an absolute landmark, legendary author of the past 100 years of American letters anyway. She's probably the most famous African-American author Gosh, maybe of the last, yeah, 50 to 100 years. Certainly one of the most celebrated. James Baldwin, Mm -hmm. I guess, would be up there and a few others we could name. And so, yeah, she's just an absolute landmark kind of signpost person for one. If you want to understand black American experience and African-American history, then you kind of have to know about Toni Morrison. And so I chose what turns out to be her first ever book, which I did not know. Did you know that? I had no idea. (laughs) Me neither. I had just heard of the title. The only books of hers I've read all the way through are Jazz and Beloved, which I think Beloved is the one that's commonly taught in school. Did you ever have to read Beloved? Uh, No, actually, Bluest Eye was the one that I read for my um, AP English class. Yeah, which I could see the appeal of it. It is both literary and dense and also kind of short, you know, for a classic and for something that's so multifaceted. It is not... The Longest Book, which also appealed to me when I was looking over things we could pick. I think if you're going to dive into something that is literary in the analytical, interpretive sense, then it's good to pick something maybe not 400 pages, 500 pages in epic. This is something quite digestible in length, so that's kind of why I chose it. As we mentioned, this is a book club episode, so we're going to begin now talking about the book and spoiling the entire first half. So if you're going to jump off now to maybe go read, then we'll catch you later. And if you're here for the ride, then let's dig in, Amanda. We like to begin the book clubs with a fill-in-the-blank prompt just to get some discussion going. I wrote this one, and it is kind of vague, but I'll explain my thought process. So this is the the fill-in-the-blank. The section of the book, or point of view of the book that it began or explored, but that I wanted to keep going was blank because blank. And I chose this just because the book does jump points of view. It jumps characters, Mm -hmm. goes from, I think it's Claudia's the main character, but then there's also Piccola. And then it does jump to the family, the kind of middle-class family who lives by the park or lives by the school. It also jumps to their point of view for a while. Yeah. Am I missing any others? There might be others. Oh, um... Not point of view necessarily. The, like the very first chapter, we get that weird run-on sentence thing. So I don't know. Right. Perhaps that's Piccola as well. But we, I mean, mm-hmm. that's not clarified yet. No, it's not. It recurs. It has begun yeah. some sections too. And so right. I'm going to let you start off with the blank. Which part did you feel like you wanted to spend more time in? 
So mine was more of like instead of it being because this the people that I chose were not uh, people who have their own point of view in the story, but are characters in the story who have a section kind of like dedicated to them in Piccola's point of view. And I chose um, the three prostitutes uh, mm-hmm. that Piccola yeah. interacts with. Um, and I really like them because they are different from the other adults in many ways. But uh, one of Claudia's main complaints in her point of view story is that the adults ignore the kids and don't actually talk to the kids. Communication is very strained between children and adults. But the the prostitutes actually do speak to Piccola and like they show more deference to her than they do to other adults. So I think that's a great contrast that I would love to keep uh, kind of like seeing and how that develops throughout the whole story and how that mm-hmm. plays a part in Piccola's uh, story as well because it, ultimately the story is about Piccola from different perspectives. Yeah, I think that the three prostitutes get one of the better descriptions in the book so far where there's a passage she describes them as gargoyles and sort of yeah. that they perch above their home and they're sort of these wise kind of crass figures who see things the way that they are and i believe there's even a <clears throat> excuse me a sentence in there that they it says explicitly they are not from books they are not the friendly and kind of gentle kind prostitutes from novels that they're a different type maybe a more pragmatic maybe more beaten down sort yeah yeah definitely one that i think they'll come up again though because they just as kind of near the end they paid a visit to is it mr frank or frank mr henry mr henry there we go i knew it was just kind of a simple man's name they paid him a visit <laughs> which was seemed pretty clear what was going on mm-hmm. yeah so i'm assuming they'll be back i think yeah. mine for this one is going to be the and this is a book it's really going to test my my name stretching but i, I won't make excuses i don't remember names of any kind the <laughs> family though especially the woman there was a chapter um, I believe it's, they say, it says she's from a place, Mobile, Aiken, Newport, Marietta, Meridian. And it's the family yeah. whose cat was just attacked, uh, kind of accidentally, by Piccola. And it, there's, a, there's an introduction to that family that describes the mother and sort of her history and her life. I, I guess just kind of as a, a black woman in the upper middle class is kind of the description and it describes the decisions she makes how she meets her family how she finds a husband how she kind of lives a sort of dispassionate maybe even callous sort of life and i just thought that the i mean as some we'll get into when we get into some quotes and style as so much of the book does it described it so kind of poignantly but then we just kind of moved away from that it almost seemed like we set up those characters just so that when Piccola goes into the home and gets tricked into that bullying scenario, that it becomes an even more poignant scene, kind of a class. There's definitely some class tones to it now, get, knowing where she comes from versus where the, what this family is about. And so I just I thought that part was so rich and vivid and her even though it was only, you know, four to five pages, I felt like I got an interesting sense of that, that woman's mindset, her, the dynamics of her life. And I just thought, yeah, we, we could spend more time with her. I'd like to know how she feels about the town, the people in it, Piccola's family, who now, I mean, she, they're basically at war. I couldn't right. tell if the cat died, by the way. I don't know if you, how you read that. Because it, it, there was a, some line at the end that it said it kind of jerked or it kind of moved. Yeah, the tail swished a little bit. So I took yeah. that to mean that the cat was still alive, which was I thought very so too. nice for me to read. Yeah, tough. <laughs> uh, like, really, oh, yeah. really quite a brutal 
vicious passage. That was, yeah, that was a tough one. And so, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure if you found that part to be, that family to be provocative. Um, their, their son, who is clearly a kind of manipulative sociopath <laughs> of some yeah. kind, um, is also kind of an intriguing figure now in the story of Menace, for, at least for the young kids. But I, I found that just the setup of the mother in that family was incredibly affecting to me. Yeah, I thought that um, that chapter was really interesting to me, especially the effects of how you would think that growing up, um, her son growing up um, with better circumstances than many around him, that he would have more compassion. But actually, the mother, Geraldine, like teaches him to separate and segregate himself from people whom she considers to be below her. So that classism, like you said, definitely presents itself there, which I found interesting Mm -hmm. because it also generates um, more anger, more antagonism within a community and more um, violence, right? Ultimately violence there. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that was really interesting. Certainly a lack of solidarity. That's for sure. Yeah, And seemingly, seemingly drawn along class lines, but there were some, other hints that it also has to do with race, but also, yeah, but also not. And there's sort of echelons within that or sort of divisions within that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, their whole perspective was, again, it's a brief glimpse that the book gives, but I found it to be rather devastating. And it seems like they will be back given that what happened with the cat and everything. I assume they'll be back, but I would we'll love s- it if they did come back. <laughs> yeah. they Well, they're certainly a catalyst and an antagonistic figure. At least the boy is. So yeah, we'll, we'll see if that continues. Okay, let's jump into some surprises then. This is where we like to discuss what in the book surprised us, whether for for better or worse. I'll throw mine in first, I suppose, then. Made you go before. I think Claudia was a surprise. And granted, I don't even know if she's the main character. She's just the first character we get, except for that run-on sentence scene that sets up the book. She's kind of gnarly, not in the skateboarder slang way, but in the... (laughs) roots of a tree branching out and hitting concrete and just sort of becoming knotted and entangled and sort of she's just very twisty i think she has these really perverted notions of love and i i pulled some quotes for her because so much of the writing deserves it's i don't know to be unpacked des- deserves its place in the pod um she says of love and this is at the end of a passage about her mother In the night when my coughing was dry and tough, feet padded into the room, hands repinned the flannel, readjusted the quilt, and rested a moment on my forehead. So when I think of Autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. And that's sort of, that's her impression and sort of her memory, lasting memory of her mother and how her mother cared for her, which was to reprimand her, to sort of lightly... I don't know, I was going to say like accost, I think assault would be a bit strong, but to definitely accost her a bit reprimand her in any way but also it's that she just kept her going Mm -hmm. as well and it's that twisted notion of love of just sort of is is it unrequited love or something or is it unconditional love who knows but we know that it's kind of there's a practical practicality to it that she found finds to be what love is and i found that to be a kind of strange notion but also very practical i suppose and very survivalist i guess we would say she also is can be a touch judgmental and kind of prickly on page i believe the first time they meet her is on 62 it's when maureen comes into the picture the the new girl at school describes her braided hair as two lynch ropes i mean which i guess is the narrator doing it but it's also from claudia's perspective 
It says she was rich by at least our standards, as rich right. as the richest of the white girls, swaddled in comfort and care. The quality of her clothes threatened to derange Frida and me. Patent leather shoes with buckles, a cheaper version of which we only got at Easter and which had disintegrated by the end of May. And then she she enchanted the entire school. When teachers called on her, they smiled encouragingly. Black boys didn't trip her in the halls. White boys didn't stone her. White girls didn't suck their teeth when she was assigned to be their work partners. And they she continues on. And so it's, she just gets fixated upon this new student of whom she's quite envious and jealous because of her status, because of the way that she's perceived in the school, both on class lines and some, some kind of racial lines, too. And so it's it's all conditioning for Claudia. There's a lot of her own background that's feeding into this, her own experience. But yeah, she can come off as kind of judgmental, but then it's justified. But then maybe she takes it too far sometimes. And it just, I found her as a protagonist to be just a fascinating study so far. So complex in a way that surprised me in a good way, I think. I, I think that Prickly is definitely a great way to describe her. Like with Maureen too, at the end of that, chapter when they mm-hmm. get into yeah, that yeah. random argument and like it was because she ha- she was upset that Maureen didn't buy her ice cream and then she just like kind of lashed out about that and was a uh, started the whole argument about like don't talk about her father I wouldn't talk about her father yeah, you were talking right. about don't talk about her father <laughs> like it's just so funny <laughs> um, <laughs> which also shows how like childish she still is but some of her insights into the standard of beauty right the standards for beauty how much she hates being told pretty much that like in order for her to be considered pretty is to be white that I think is really insightful for someone who's supposed to be a child um, and then her understanding of like and fear of how much hatred hatred she has for people who mm-hmm. do meet that yeah. beauty standard, right? She's got a lot of anger about that. She talks about how she would love to just like, pretty much just like murder them, right? She's very violent in that in that description. Yeah, there's an undercurrent in her character of violence and of willingness to pursue violence and to lash out at people that doesn't manifest. There's moments with Maureen where she fantasizes about inflicting violence upon her. And I mean, I read the quote where she describes her braids as lynch ropes. She sort of imbues everything with this. There's a very unsettling quality to her that she could lash out at any moment and strike out. It, It seems like her and her sister have reached a kind of stalemate or something in their relationship where they don't abuse each other back and forth. Maybe that's just sibling love. They, they can be harsh with each other, but never, at least not that I remember, have they like been violent with each other, but yeah, I think Claudia is just such a, yeah, she's just a, a rough edged person more so than I was expecting for a kid. And maybe this is narrated as kind of her remembrances of her childhood or something. It, it seems like given the quality of the narration and the thoughtfulness and everything, it's clearly not a child's voice. You know, it's, if anything, it's a narrator dictating right. that. So I guess as a study of a child, it just seemed way, it was, came off as way more complex and sort of yeah prickly than I anticipated. How about a surprise for you? Um, the one that I chose was that there's an early reveal in the first bit before we get into the, the actual like sections there that Piccola is mm-hmm. going to have her father's child. Like it's just, bam, that's like one of the first lines in that first chap the, one of the first two chapters, which I, I reference those two chapters as like the prologue section because it comes before the winter section and it, then it's divided yeah, by... Yeah seasons anyway so in the prologue section we're immediately told kind of like 
the main, what we assume would be the main conflict of the novel. And it just makes me think like, is it then the actual main conflict of the novel? Or is there going to be a, a different one about that? Like it kind of colors the way that I'm, I'm reading the story because, and what I have picked up on, like specifically with my motif in the next section that will be mm-hmm. in the next segment that we'll be talking about. But like, it just affected, I think, for me, the rest of the story to be told just straight up that that's going to happen. Um, and it also reminds me of when we read The Body by Stephen King. Right, he did right. the same. Stephen King did the same thing where it's like, hey, well, like this is about us going to see a body, a dead body. <laughs> like, And it's like, oh, OK. Is that the conflict? Is that like so I just find that an interesting when authors do that in general. I just find that interesting when they kind of reveal something that big and what you would assume would be the main conflict. But now you're not sure if that's actually at the beginning of the story, Piccola has already come to live with them, but then seemingly at points in the story is not living with them mm-hmm. too, with Claudia's family. And so I didn't... Okay. That was meant to be temporary because um, Piccola's dad at that time had been jailed. So it is mostly chronological then? Because we've... We, yeah, that makes sense. I, I just wasn't sure if, the, if Piccola yeah. had come to live with them in the beginning because of the, the big quote-unquote incident that we still haven't seen. We don't know... Yeah, if the pregnancy thing is literal, and I, it's funny too because I read that intro section and then I almost didn't even interpret it literally. I just thought it maybe meant something. I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know how my brain interpreted it, but I didn't think of it as it was, there'd be some kind of incestuous, literal baby having. I, I don't know. I just, for some reason, my brain just didn't kick it in that way. And, but now reading the story and looking back at it, it does seem like it will be very literal. And so I just have no idea how that conflict will, will mm-hmm. come to pass. Quick then, before, because I do want to get to the motifs, I have one more surprise. I just feel like it warrants mentioning the cat murder slash assault was, I found, kind of <laughs> disturbing, I guess. And I it, I don't know if I would say it's unnecessary or necessary. Like most things in this book, the cat itself has a symbolic importance to the mother and the way she shows it affection and the kind of affection yeah. that it draws from her is significant because it seems like her husband does not get that from her. Maybe even her child doesn't either. And it has sort of its own... So as a symbol, there's a bunch of ways we could read into it, which makes it interesting. I just don't... The description of it, kind of like a helicopter blade or something, and then it... I don't know. It did make me gasp. I just did not anticipate that when he... I I was obviously concerned that he was going to bully her in some form or fashion since she is just such a downtrodden character in the story and it's in such a tough situation. I, I didn't think they were going to become fast friends, but I also did imagine the scene once she was inside the home. I didn't imagine the scene ending in the, like, throwing a cat against a radiator. I don't know. I And I do... I felt bad. I knew that that might affect you a little differently. I, I love cats, too. I grew up with cats, but I know you have special... You really like your your pets, your cat. So I, I found that section tough to read, and I, I felt for you then. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not a fan of that section, but I I knew that at some point, um, because of the way that he the the boy had interacted with the cat yeah. before, yeah. that something bad would eventually happen to that cat. <laughs> I didn't think it would happen that soon, um, or in the way that it did. But I was like, this this kid is definitely one hundred percent going to murder this cat, like just his attitude and the way that the mother 
treated the cat, which also like I found really fascinating, and I tied that to my motif as well. It's yeah, just... The, just the the, dis- the the description, what it leads to, I think the conflict it drew out is again the description of it is just so vivid and intense and really almost grotesque because it leads to her just having this the mother having yeah. this disdain for Piccola this this young girl who symbolizes so much of what she hates maybe even her own self-hatred or race or class hatred or something but it's she describes yeah. Piccola as the end of the world lays in her eyes and the beginning and all the waste in between she describes her and people you know quote unquote like her they lived on cold black-eyed peas and orange pop that, like flies, they hovered, like flies, they settled. And this one had settled in her house. And then she, in, in this quote, I'm just going to have to put a disclaimer on this podcast because there are some quotes we should just read. But the thing she says is, get out, her voice quiet, you nasty little black bitch, get out of my house. And then the cat kind of shakes. And yeah, it's just so vicious and kind of disturbing so I guess in that sense, I, I appreciated yeah. as much as one could in the, I don't know, quality of writing sense, what the scene is doing and all of that's going on. But I don't know, something about still getting the animal abuse in there just kind of unsettled me the most. Not Maybe not more than those quotes that I just read, but yeah, anyway, it just felt... I, I don't know. Some part of me was just thinking, couldn't we have just maybe he, they get into a little scrum or something? You know, couldn't they just push each other or maybe she hits a table lamp or breaks something? I don't I don't know. Something about the cat twirling around and then getting thrown was just ah, I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, still, though. Yeah. The, and it, it definitely highlights too again, the disconnect between the kids and adults. Like this is another example of an adult who is not a very good caretaker. Yes, yeah, she does all the physical things that's necessary, just like Piccola's mom does. And Piccola's mom does, when she's sick, show her some some empathy and some sympathy when she thinks that Piccola is, like, asleep. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Claudia's mom, yeah. Um, right, and she's just, like, yeah, her whole life is just to... Battle. Make In herself battle, feel better her by husband, putting yeah. her husband down. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the, the idea that... The adults in in that we see in this story, except for the the prostitutes, they are really good at kind of just like bringing the kids down in a lot of ways. The way that they talk to them, and they're like, "Don't talk right. unless I tell you to talk." Um, she calls her all those t- terrible names after the incident with the cat. She also is not loving towards her son right. and is not uplifting to him, except to like scold him and tell him who he can and cannot hang out with and stuff like that. It's it's really interesting how there's not a whole lot of actual like emotional nurturing going on. Yeah, the nurturing would all be in the, I am providing for you, making sure you don't die. It's kind of, again, it's Claudia's notion of love. It's the notion of, well, you were sick and I gave you enough care and comfort so you are not dead or, you know, that you got well. And so, yeah, it's it's more of a notion of love like that. Let's move into some motifs. We've we've already, I think, been dissecting Mm -hmm. things in the book anyway. We also like to begin the first book clubs with, we each pick one motif, some kind of repeated idea, notion, literary element, uh, maybe a symbol or something that we think it really matters in the story. Why don't you begin with yours, Amanda? Talk us through uh, the motif you think matters. Uh, The one that I chose is sex. Um, So we, like I mentioned (laughs) at the very beginning, we know that Pacola is going to get impregnated by her dad. That chapter in particular where that's stated is also the imagery and the metaphor that's being used to describe how um, 
ideas need to be nurtured and how um, perceptions of like identity and perceptions of self-worth are also Mm. seeds and stuff like that. Uh, I thought that was really sexual too. Um, And from page six, it says, uh, we had dropped our seeds in our own little plot of black dirt, just as Piccola's father had dropped his seeds in his own plot of black dirt. Our innocence and faith were no more productive than his lust or despair. So there's a lot of uh, comparison to sexual ideas and sexual acts that we see that's like very overt like that. But we also see them in um, a little bit more of a subtle way in a lot of ways. Um, We see that also uh, in the very first line in the autumn section. It says, nuns go by quiet as lust. And drunken men in sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. That's mm-hmm. the very first yeah, right. line in that section, uh, which I found really interesting that they would compare nuns to lust. <laughs> um, uh, but also, uh, we can see that too with like there are prostitutes and they joke with Piccola and amongst themselves about sex, which Piccola doesn't really understand because she's a child. Um, but I also found uh, Geraldine's chapter. Um, her chapter is full of, um, discussions of section and sensuality specifically. Like when Geraldine is having sex, it's like her duty to do it and there's no passion. And she talks about like how inconvenient it is. And she's like, why can't they just like have sex with our armpit? Why does it have to be down there? Like (laughs) put it in a more convenient spot. Yeah. Yeah. The most awkward. Yeah. It's too awkward or something. It's cumbersome and it. Because it's pleasureless, it's, yeah, just a... Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting, especially, so she has zero um, passion for her husband and zero, like, compassion for either one of them. But her cat, the way her relationship with her cat is described, is actually very sensual. Um, The... Yeah, it's like, I mean, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Um... loves her cat a little bit more than I love my cats. Um, <laughs> a lot of warmth. A lot of, a lot of warmth on the, yeah. on the uh, so, lap. And, which I found funny because, like, specifically sitting on her lap, it feels so good to her that she opens her legs for the cat, which is that imagery right there is, like, very sexual, too. So there's a lot of, in that particular chapter as well, I caught a lot of uh, sexual references and also, I, I have the mind of, like, a teenage boy, yeah. and I just find sex and everything because I'm gross. Sorry. So. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you and all the famous <laughs> authors, right? <laughs> you and all the – you and yeah. Shakespeare, I suppose. <laughs> you know? It's – I don't know. There aren't there aren't too many con- really vaulted um, – or vaunted, rather, literary classics that don't have, you know, intense yeah. passages about sex and desire and everything. No, I think it's a motif that given the framing, if nothing else that, yeah, it's obviously Piccolo's father is going to have some truly disgusting moment of lust or confusion, or we don't know. I, again, that how that happens and how she becomes pregnant. uh, We still really don't know. He only shows up in a drunken stupor once and they fight. And I believe there's even a line I was trying to find it as you were going in on the the sex motif. I was trying to find the line where I'm pretty sure because they describe how violently they fight and it's kind of this holy war 
and the mother uses kind of religious language against him. She's almost like a, pr- right. a preacher against him or something. And they're fighting with such vigor. But I'm pretty sure there's a line there, a sentence in there that's sort of like, and then sometimes right. they make love that way or something. I thought there was something like that, but I couldn't find the quote. Anyway, I think it's in there. Yeah, so. there is a quote. Um, I don't remember between Mrs. Breedlove and Charlie, but like, yeah, Charlie, she, she talks about um, Piccola mentioned specifically that they fight and then their love making is also just as like uncomfortable for her because they all share one bedroom and she says that mrs breedlove the most disturbing part is like how how quiet mrs breedlove is through the whole thing versus charlie right Yeah. yeah 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 interesting okay i'm gonna jump in with my motif and mine is food and drink which i think the clearest way it shows up so far for me is about status, with which, which is partially what Maureen, the new kid at school, reveals straight away. Mm-hmm. Her access to being able to buy ice cream and afford ice cream, which is sort of an unknowable treat, you know, to the girls. Well, actually, not unknowable. Their uncle or Mister Frank offers them later. We'll talk about that. But it, it is something that because of what she wants to buy them and how and how flippantly she offers it, it's pretty clear that it, you know, it's a status marker, it's a class marker, and it shows something that she has, you know access to that they would not and but the mr frank use of it is also kind of interesting because at that point it's it's a thing of distraction for the kids it's something just to give them a light entertainment so that he can uh, we assume have sex with the prostitutes that he is paying again i don't know if that scene portrays that in any other way they describe him as kind of laughing with them and making jokes but hard to say if that's them knowing each other as acquaintances or them again about to have sex or something so i i don't know i think that's the way to read it and then the other, I think the other most interesting way that it showed up was on 79 through 80, when the girls are meant to care for the pot of boiling flowers that the mother is cooking into kind of like a broth or a soup. Did you pay attention to that scene? Did you notice that one? The Where um, Mr. Henry told them that the mom had said to turn off the... Yeah, it, or it's the turnips, I think. Yeah, it's turnip she's greens, kind yeah. of boiling some turnips. The yeah, turnip greens. And it says, and her and her sister are discussing... But if we let the turnip greens burn, we won't have to eat them. Hey, what a lovely idea, I thought. Which do you want, a whipping and no turnips or turnips and no whippings? I don't know. Maybe we could burn them just a little so Mama and Daddy can eat them, but we can say we can't. Okay, I made a volcano out of my anthill, which, by the way, is the snack they were given. She made a volcano out of it. And then Frida, what? What did Woodrow do that was you was going to tell? What the bed? Mrs. Kane said Mama... Or Mrs. Kane told Mama he won't quit, old nasty. The sky was getting dark. I looked out of the window and snow was fall- and saw snow falling. I poked my finger down into the mouth of my volcano and it toppled, dispersing the golden grains into little swirls, and the turnip pot crackled, which felt like an ominous between the volcano image and the, the turnip pot, which they're purposely letting boil over and become, you know, charred and gross. I think these are just... I don't know. These are objects of sustenance. These are things that are meant to give them fuel and give them life, but they're they're being used to kind of boil over almost in a conflict way. Again, comparing it to a volcano that just got toppled and there's the pot that's clearly cooking too far. It's the kids are sort of rejecting these things. Yeah. And I I couldn't tell if that's a kind of reflection of their internal conflict with the world they're in and the position that they have in this world that they're always at odds because of race or class and that they're they're just born into something so hostile to them that they can't even make even these things that should be comforting are are turned into kind of 
things about to explode, I, I guess, or like literally boiling over. And so I don't know. I, I just, I think there's ways it could be read into. I just found it to be fascinating. The last one I'll mention that I thought was noteworthy was how Piccolo, when she visits them or has to stay with them, she drinks milk at such an intense pace <laughs> or she drinks so much of it that the mother, you know, goes on the one page rant about how she, no one should be drinking that much milk. Who needs that much milk in their body? But then again, for Bacola, it's just a way to, uh, uh, there you go. I was gonna say it's, it's a iconic white girl who is Shirley supposed Temple. to be really angelic and really, you know, pretty or something. Or am I misremembering? That is yeah, who it Shirley is, Temple, right? Yeah, it's some kind of, yeah, it's like a really pretty eyed. child. Yeah, it's like a pretty childlike face or child's face. It's kind of angelic, but and so yeah, it's Piccola just absolutely housing this milk to get to this purity symbol. And so in that case, I guess the the milk is just sort of a means to an end, I suppose, just sort of like something in the way. But it's I just found it noteworthy, I guess, that almost none of these uses are meant to actually be comforting or sustaining. That it's, I guess the ice cream is the closest we come, but even that's a negotiating bargaining tool that kind of goes awry. And so, yeah, I don't know. Would it, did you make any um, any sense of any of those in particular? The way that, I, what I found interesting is like the way that the adults uh, view food versus um, the way that the kids view them, right? The kids view them as things okay, yeah. that they can... Um, that they either want or don't want, that they desire or don't desire. And the um, adults view it as like, you need it uh, or you don't need it. And, uh, or I, I need you to get out of my way. So it's like tools for the parents. And then for right, the kids, right. it's more of like a, about like desire versus not desiring. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to interpret it too. There's also the scene where Piccolo goes to buy the candy and she's treated in a dehumanizing way by the man mm-hmm. in the, who runs the store. How she sort of he perceives her as a kind of an alien or even like a non-human and there seems to be a void between them and how he receives her as a young black girl. She he just doesn't he doesn't conceptualize that she could have needs or wants and she wants that candy. There's also I think there's one more use of food that I I just had in my mind and then let go. But I'm pretty sure there was one other case to read into, too. But anyway, yeah, it is it is kind of a story of snacks in an odd way. And of me, kind of almost not meals, though. There's not like breaking bread. There's no gathering, feasting, like anything I can remember like that where the families do it as a way to unite. It's just kind of at the fringe. There's these little moments of sustenance or something. What's interesting, too, actually, now that you mention it, um, Maria, one of the prostitutes, the Maginot Line, the, the really big prostitute... Her story, oh, okay. all like every time she mentions anything about food, she just kind of like thinks like she goes off onto a tangent about food in in some a couple of the stories that she was telling Piccola, and she like had this longing in her eyes, and like it was very descriptive her relationship with food. Yeah, okay. I I'll have to go back and revisit that. Well, I didn't even remember that passage, but yeah, it's it is sprinkling its way or kind of sprinkles throughout the the story so far. Okay, let's jump into some Please Continue, Make It Stop. This is one of the final segments we'll do in the Part 1 book club here. We're going to each give a critique of the work and something we think that we're is getting tiresome or we don't like, but also something we're really loving. Why don't you start us off, and you can pick whether you want to do your Please Continue or Make It Stop first. I'll start with my um, Make It Stop, which was probably mm-hmm. the most difficult part for me this yeah. whole outline <laughs> just because I'm really enjoying the read so far. Um, everything yeah, right. here is 
so purposeful. It's everything is so meaningful, and it's almost like reading prose poetry in a lot of ways. Um, my only hesitation, I suppose, would be with the marine scene in particular. She's mixed race, right? Um, she's upper class, and she is cute, which she was sure to reiterate as she was running away from the girls. Yeah, she's confident. Yeah. <laughs> Very confident. Because she's got green eyes as well, right? She's lighter skinned and she's got green eyes. So she's mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, I'm cute and you know I'm cute. Everybody knows I'm cute. That's why the teachers are nice to me. So my my thing is just like, okay, so if this is the only scene in which we see Maureen, is her purpose, because everything is so purposeful in this book, was her purpose to highlight the beauty standards? Um, is it to highlight the wealth disparity? Is it to emphasize that these are just children who are experiencing these things, um, specifically because of the random fight at the be, at the end of that chapter because of Claudia's jealousy? Or is it something else? Is it all of these things? Like, I'm, I'm still trying to, I suppose fully understand the the significance of Maureen's uh, character, which perhaps I won't fully understand until I get to the end. But yeah, that's that would be my only hesitation. Yeah. It's not even a big one. It's just like, oh, I would like to know more. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and the completely in the Marine scene is fascinating because it, it clearly sets up the sisters to engage in a bit of conflict. It shows how they deal with kids, not just adults, because otherwise they've really only been around Piccola and other adults. And so it's kind of it gives them another social dynamic, allows them to stand up to the boys. I, I thought it really worked, but you're right. It, it opens so many things that this Maureen character is clearly such a significant part of this conflict for them and how they're deal- working through their ideas of race and class. But we just don't know where, what's going to happen yeah. with it yet. I agree. It's kind of just because it just happened, we haven't had a chance to plumb the depths of it and see what comes out of it. My make it stop is also, it's a compliment as well as a critique, I suppose. And I think it, you're right. This was a difficult section because it's so well written and the book has just been, the pacing has been strong Every character is complex and interesting, and uh, yeah, even though it's jumping point of view, it works really well. It's it's hard to come up with a criticism, but you can tell a genius wrote this, but you can also tell a genius wrote it, and it was the first thing they wrote, I think. When you visit authors who are really, you know, held up in the canon and um, kind of memorialized or considered these canonized classic writers, these strong writers... Sometimes when you visit their first or second books, there's a certain density to it where it almost feels um, self-conscious in a way. Like, I have to make sure everything here is so intense or dense. It's kind of this peculiar throw-everything-at-the-wall style that you see. I'm reminded of a couple other authors I've read. Thomas Pynchon and Julian Barnes are two authors I've liked that came to mind. I don't know why. I think they, they write about such different things than Toni Morrison did. But something about when I encountered some of their first books, it just feels like the person couldn't take a sentence off in a way. And maybe some Faulkner reminded me of this too, but it's like a prose is hurricane. And so there's nothing, no moment's going to be frivolous and no moment is even going to be that breathable. It's all really intense. So to me, I don't know. I I love writing like that. So I don't know. I like it when a person just whips themselves up into a frenzy and writes in such an intense way, especially if this, you know, if this book is not 700 pages, Right. right? Like 200 pages of this makes, I think for an interesting condensed, really intense experience but it it has created some odd moments if not even enjoyable the one i pulled is from 36 it's about a couch uh that the the breedlove family has and she spends an entire paragraph and half on the sofa 
and she says in second person, you could hate a sofa, of course, that is, if you could... Um, if you could hate a sofa, but it didn't matter. You still had to get together $4.80 a month. You have, you had to pay that $4.80 a month for a sofa that started off split, no good and humiliating. You couldn't take any joy in owning it, and the joyless stank, pervading everything. The stink of it kept you from coming from painting the beaver board walls, from getting a matching piece of material for the chair, even from sewing up the split, which became a gash, which became a gaping chasm that exposed the cheap frame and cheaper upholstery. It withheld the refreshment in a sleep slept on it, it imposed a furtiveness in the loving done on it, like a sore tooth that is not content to throb in isolation, but must diffuse its own pain to other parts of the body, making breathing difficult, vision limited, nerves unsettled. So a hated piece of furniture produces a fretful malaise that asserts itself throughout the house and limits the delight of things not related to it. Yeah, I mean, it's what what writing. It was incredible mm-hmm. stuff about a couch that I guess kind of just creates a gloom in their home. I don't It's It's quite a work of setting, but also to describe a ripped up piece. And I, I even get kind of the overall mood or point of how one thing can kind of, that's how kind of rot works. It, it creeps in, something can just start to rot in a space and w- unless it's dealt with, it just sort of branches out and le- leaks itself all over. And I, I don't know, it, it's so brilliantly rewritten, but then I get to a, a line like a, the sore tooth, not content to throb in isolation. And I remember she's just describing a couch that was delivered with a r- rip in it and, Anyway, it's 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 funny too because again I'm using this as my critique, but I read that paragraph and I think, gosh, that's just what an incredible sense of like haunt this haunted almost cursed place in a way that they live in in the setting that they have. But then I'm like, well, it's, it's do we need all that for this couch? I don't. It's anyway. It I so it's just moments like that where I I look at it and I think that's again it's kind of a criticism, but then. I don't know. <laughs> there's there's real power in the writing. So anyway, that's that's my make it stop. I, I, I really don't want it to stop. But you're right. I had to come up with a critique. It's only fair. I mean, there's no any piece of writing or art has something about it that could be you could not react positively right. to. So anyway, I enjoyed uh, the couch one, too, because the way that I interpreted that was the couch is actually a symbol for helplessness, right? Because he could not stop it from occurring. And that helplessness pervades everything in his life, which is also because this is Charlie's couch, right? And so that feeling of helplessness creates the feeling of anger and which then creates the violence, which then creates the idea that like he's got to somehow mitigate that. So he goes to drinking and stuff. So I, I saw that as how helplessness can negatively affect an entire household. The cycle of couch yeah, violence, indeed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I. It's. I don't know. Yeah, I. <laughs> I chose that one because it's. But then again, certain objects in a place you live, certain things that are meant to be like. There's the line in there about how you're supposed to. A couch is something to rest on or make love on, and it's supposed to bring comfort or something. But it, if it has these things wrong with it, it can just be a kind of. Again, almost like a cursed object or something in the mm-hmm. home. So. Yeah, even, I mean, the thing about this book is that I, I'm sure whatever I would have chosen for Make It Stop, I would have just w- talked myself against it as I was explaining it and whipped myself kind of into the opposite direction or sort yeah. of <laughs> turned myself around as I was exactly. doing it. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. I'll, I'll mention my Please Continue, which will be much quicker. I wasn't quite on board with the point of you jumping at first, but it, when the Breed Love part happened and it described how they have this, they live in this 
space, this industrial almost kind of former restaurant space. And it went through the history briefly of how they ended up there and what restaurants were there before. And then it did it again with the the woman and her son. Why do I keep forgetting their names? Who live by the school? Geraldine. What are and their names? I don't remember the son's Geraldine. Name. Yeah. And her son, the bully. Yeah, the we bully. can just call him. So, but anyway, yeah, the bully and uh, their family, but the, both of those times, it was just so in, intense and such a focused bit of rhetoric that I just couldn't help but admire it. I was concerned that the jumping around would be a little distracting for me, but that's my please continue. I think if she can write in such a compact with such compact fury directed at these people, I don't think she like fury in that she hates them, but just the intensity of the writing is just so high that it, yeah, I, I ended up admiring those parts maybe the most. So I agree. Yeah. The, I'm not usually a fan of a whole lot of perspective jumping, um, and she doesn't do a whole lot to like clarify whose perspective it is like in the beginning. So you're just kind of like, yeah, am I yeah. reading about right now until, you know, a certain event clarifies yep. for you. But yeah, I, I found that to be really great because um, in the foreword, actually, she, she discussed that she mentions, Toni Morrison mentions that like one of the purposes for writing this is to get an overall sense of what the community is like and, and to point out some of the, um, things that, that need to be improved. Um, so having different perspectives mm-hmm. and making this an every person story specifically and not just a story about Pecola um, is is right. her goal. So I think doing all of the, the different perspectives is probably like a great way to do that. Yeah, and I, it's clear that Pecola is going to be probably the most important, maybe the tragic yeah. figure at the center, but I, I still keep reading Claudia as the main character in my mind. I'm not sure why, but maybe because we get her point of view the most or her family's the most, but anyway. Yeah, so my, my please continue is just continue, I guess, the writing in that way, but then also I, I don't mind the point of view jumping as long as, I don't know, I mean, we have half a book to go. I don't know how many more characters this book can hold up, you know, right. how much it, how much with the complexity we already have it can sustain. I don't know if it can sustain five more character introductions or something, but I certainly don't mind the point of view jumping. I, again, came to admire it. How about for your Please Continue? Uh, for mine, I said uh, Toni Morrison's descriptions. I think that, like I said before, it's it's almost like she's writing poetry in a lot of ways. Um, her descriptions are unique, they're vivid, and they are to the point. So I have an example from page 65. Um, it was their contempt for their own mm-hmm. blackness that gave the first insult its teeth. They seem to have taken all of their smoothly cultivated ignorance, their exquisitely learned self-hatred, their elaborately designed hopelessness, and sucked it all up into a fiery cone of scorn that had burned for ages in the hollows of their minds, cooled, and spilled over lips of outrage rage consuming whatever was in its path they danced a macabre ballet around the victim whom for their own sake they were prepared to sacrifice to the flaming pit um and that and is that the boys taunting yeah, Piccola? what is that's that exactly it. okay yeah and i just i mean wow this also ties to i guess the the volcano imagery too from the graham crackers right um mm-hmm, but yeah. i just i loved that description because I mean, it's so vivid and it also gives us insight into um, the narrator's idea that, or the author's idea that there's um, root causes for some of the, the violence and stuff that we see um, among communities, all communities. And it's, it stems mostly uh, from 
like self-hatred because of the idea that they are not wanted, that they are not loved, that they are not desirable in some ways. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, you're not going to go a page in this book without some kind of, I don't know, again, I, I don't want to ascribe just the arbitrary words or something, but it is kind of a literary genius moment of creation, of poetry. And yeah, I think Toni Morrison's reputation is pretty well ingrained in the culture as sort of a, a poetic writer, a writer of great kind of delicacy almost in a weird way, or that she can write and be very delicate about things, but also is unsparing. At least that's kind of my memory of Beloved is in that same register. And so I don't, yeah, I go back to my Make It Stop, which again was kind of half-hearted attempt at it, but it's just so clear that this is somebody, I when I read it now, knowing that it's her first novel, I'm not stunned by that anymore because it does feel like somebody kind of working out on the page all that they are capable of doing. So you kind of are getting this really intense download of genius and of genius writing on, yeah, and seemingly every other page there's kind of something to meditate on like yeah. that. Yeah, it's a gruesome scene written in a gruesome way. Yeah fire and sacrifice <laughs> any other final thoughts before we move to the big predictions uh, nope i'm good cool we like to end the book clubs at least with fiction first book clubs with a big bold prediction for the second half of the story or the narrative i will go first though mine is very limp because i don't really know what to say <laughs> i just predict that i'm going to enjoy reading it whatever <laughs> happens I, now that we look back at the intro, though, we discussed this already, but we know Piccola is supposed to have her father's child, and we, I can assume now that that's yeah. literal. And it also mentions that Charlie Breed Love is supposed to die. Mm -hmm. I think it says that directly, too, doesn't so. it? I, who knows? I, like, I feel like I have to, given the format of this podcast, say that there will be some kind of precipitating event for those things. What do we know about their father so far, right? That he's kind of worn down by life, cast out to the margins, that he is, isn't quite thrown out. Remember that digression at the beginning about how some people are like literally thrown out of their homes, but then some are more like societally thrown mm -hmm. out. Do you remember that kind of, yeah, it was kind of delineating that. And it seems like their father, maybe, maybe if he gets fired from a job or maybe that the mother Geraldine will come and confront them directly. Maybe that will incite a rage in him and kind of provoke some kind of response to the, perhaps she comments on his class or their poverty or something. I'm just trying to think of what would incite him. He seems just kind of like a, a beaten down type and, and just sort of not that he's energyless or passionless, but that he's sort of a limp figure who can only muster drunkenness and rage at his own family or something. So I don't know. We also haven't seen the, the other reason I struggle with this prediction, I think is because we haven't really seen him interact with Piccola at all. He and his wife have this sort of ritualistic violence going. They sort of posture at each other and perform this almost play-like scene of violence that their kids have to scream about. And she, under her breath, is mumbling, you know, make it stop and everything. And so, I don't know. I guess it, I just, here's what I'm wondering. What's going to change then in the second half? And I really, other than because of the conflict that just occurred with the cat and that family, and now there's this dynamic between these two families in town who are clearly on such ends of a, at least, class spectrum... I have to feel like that will be maybe what precipitates it. Maybe he feels some kind of shame about that. Maybe Piccola, he interprets as kind of brought embarrassment, more embarrassment on their family or something. How Charlie will die, I guess, defending Piccola, I suppose. I don't know. I, it's Again, they, they clearly have such a back-and-forth ritualistic violence going between them, so I don't know how that's going to escalate, but those would be kind of my loose predictions. I don't, I don't know if I feel strongly or confidently that those things will happen, but... Um, 
those are my thoughts. And given that the ending is kind of scripted, so to speak, I am very curious now how this will all come to pass. Mm-hmm. How about for you? Um, for me, I my favorite scene was like with the, the prostitutes. So um, I think that the prostitutes will show up again in the text just because they were not flat characters, right? Especially Maria or Maginoline, as she is known by Claudia. Um, she specifically, I think, is going to show up in the latter half of the book um, because yeah. they she's been in the, the text twice so far, the other time being with uh, Mr. Henry. And when she's with Mr. Henry, Mr. Henry is sucking on the fingers of China. And then in, okay. in Maginoline yeah. or Maria is just like watching. Um, she's kind of like the third wheel there. And she, and it says on page right. 77, I thought I saw a mild lonesomeness cross the face of the Maginot line, but it may have been my own image that I saw in the slow flaring of her nostrils in her eyes that reminded me of waterfalls in movies about Hawaii. So she's described in great detail. I mean, even Claudia is describing her and, and noticing something that she was not noticing, which is an emotion. Um, in this adult. So because we're getting some insights into her emotional state, I think that she's going to be in the second half and that she's there's going to be something significant that's going to happen with her in the second half. And I have a feeling that it's going to be something to do with like sex or some kind of romantic mm-hmm. interest just mm-hmm. because of her story about Dewey Prince to Piccola at the beginning, which I'm, she may have made up right. because she apparently makes up stories to Piccola. Um, but also because of the feeling of loneliness that's depicted as she's watching a, a guy interact with somebody other than her. So I think that there's going to be some kind of love triangle going on in in the last half there. Oh, okay. I think you're you're it's very appropriate and perhaps the best predictions would be made about both the prostitutes or maybe Mr. Henry too figures that are certainly important in the book but I yeah that's not where my mind went but I could see them getting embroiled in conflicts in any number of yeah. ways too. What's your quick read before we close out on Mr. Henry so far? Any insights or thoughts about that? He's kind of an odd figure because he's so clearly such a friendly, meant to be such a friendly figure, more so than Claudia's own father who d- doesn't show up at all. He's just, talk about on the fringes, I think he gets one sentence of description in the book so far. He just kind of is there, maybe nodding along to something. Yeah. But yeah, so Mr. Henry's kind of this new nice face who, you know, rewards him with candies and stuff. Any thoughts on him? Uh, he's an interesting figure too because they mentioned that they know that he's got girly magazines right so he's got porn yeah uh, they yeah. witness him um interacting with prostitutes and then the first scene that we see him in their hands are wandering all over his body and then it goes on to yeah, say which yeah. was innocent right but also it could be interpreted as like possibly sexual later and they said that it was the the idea of that um the idea of of him and the way that he treated them, um, that particular memory was not marred by what happened later, specifically with him. Yes. Which is on page 16. We loved him even after what came later. There was no bitterness in our memory of him. So that's interesting because I'm like, Mr. Henry is going to betray, or they're going to feel betrayed at some point. Is it the prostitute scene that they feel betrayed? But could it be something more serious? I don't know. I don't think yet. 
Yeah, I think that's to come. Whatever that incident is, I think it's to come. Because you're right, I think back now to the scene when they meet him, and they are kind of exploring him because he's a kind, he immediately cracks a joke with them, or kind of says a friendly uncle-like comment to them about how they're doing or how they look or something like that, their smile. I, I forget the quote, but something nice, you know, gener- he's got a geniality about him. And so, and that's just kind of how he's positioned. I think the prostitute moment is meant for the reader to, yeah, just to start to suspect yeah. a bit more and start to wonder what he's doing in the, their home and if he's taking advantage of anything, taking advantage of the situation and what his motivations might be in the story. And because, yeah, he comes in and they're they're almost in awe of this just kind of, hey, here's a gentle, nice figure, and he's, you know, cracking wise and having a good time, relaxed. But yeah, it can, it, he contrasted against their father, I find, to be interesting because, again, is, has their father even been in the story? Um, he makes a scene um, at, at the beginning of the winter chapter. She describes, uh, my daddy's face is a study. Winter moves into it and presides there. That whole first um, oh, paragraph yeah. is a description of him. But he's constantly compared to winter and to hunting so he's more of like he's not he's definitely not beautiful and he is not comforting mm-hmm. is the what i got right more of a survivalist which you know her notions of love i think i even said the word just incidentally earlier sort of a survivalist notion yeah. of love <laughs> very practical and survivalist so that matches with what she's getting from her parents anyway yeah. from him any final thoughts on the first half of The Bluest Eye before we close out the first book club? Uh, nope, I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying it, and I'm, I'm eager to read the second half. Yeah, and it it hit me as I was finishing the first half, which I read, and I think I think I did this one in two or three sittings. It was pretty... I was getting through it. I was enticed by it. Just We just need more 200-page books of this intensity and right? quality. That's all I yeah. want. I don't need more 500 to 700-page books where where the paragraphs don't hit quite like this. Now, I suppose what I'm asking for might just be a mathematical impossibility. I guess there's a reason why some writers get kind of elevated, like Toni Morrison did. I'm not saying there can be other Toni Morrisons, but I just want more authors going for a certain intensity for a shorter period of time. I want more novels that feel like sprints instead of marathons. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) That's how I felt reading the first, because just knowing that we only get another 90 pages and it leaves you wondering what could happen in that time. And anyway, yeah, I've I've appreciated the writing so much. Also, we're coming off of, did we do Evelyn Hugo last? What was the last thing we did? Yeah, it was Evelyn Hugo, yeah. Which is just such a different approach to writing a book. (laughs) I just, I can't think of a bigger whiplash in style that we could have done, jumping from that book to this one, so... Yeah, it's been it's been a nice, interesting contrast in style and study. I've enjoyed it too. Excellent. Okay. Well, join us next Friday for the fun finale of sorts. We're going to do the second part of the book club on the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. As usual, we post book book clubs every Friday. What is the book coming up after the Bluest Eye? This is when I've lost myself. I didn't put the notes. Uh, Native down. speaker by. There we go. Yes. So native speakers coming up next. As usual, we'll have a book recommendation going up in the feed for the Monday for those episodes on that book. So we'll have that coming up soon. And again, we hope you join us next Friday for part two of The Bluest Eye. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 